Picture this. It's the 1950s and something big is about to hit cinema. In this something, experimenting with nuclear weapons has awakened a monster, a dinosaur from the past that has been thrust out of its slumber by the folly of man. This monster makes its way to a major city, carving a path of destruction before tenacious scientists manage to take it down and save the day. This picture is famous for pioneering special effects and for confronting the nuclear legacy of mankind. This film is, of course, the 1953 American movie, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Wait, what? Yeah, you, you heard that right. The film was directed by Eugene Lauray, um, adapted from a Ray Bradbury story, but most importantly, it was an early work for Ray Harryhausen. His spellbinding stop motion is the only reason to watch this film. In her seminal 1965 essay, The Imagination of Disaster, Susan Sontag, the first academic to really take on the subject of science fiction and monster movies, describes how these films give us sensuous elaboration. She categorizes another appeal as being extreme moral simplification. We take joy in the aesthetics of destruction. This is very true of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It is a simple work of limited morality in which an obvious evil was defeated by an obvious good. The atomic background is just a plot catalyst. And this film, though satisfying an aesthetic level, confirms sometimes conclusion these films have no real social criticism and do not engage with the conditions of our society which create the impersonality these films offload onto aliens and monsters. Though, while this is true of The Beast, it is certainly not true of a little film called Godzilla, or Gojira, released in Japan in 1954. This film is a morally complex and technically beautiful work that transcends Sontag's otherwise insightful take on the wider genre. Though, she does cite Godzilla director Ishiro Honda in her work. It is probable that she never really saw his work. She refers to him as Inishiro, the transliterated name given before Ishiro Honda made it clear he preferred Ishiro. However, early Americanized edits of Godzilla films used Inishiro. And in America and in countries outside of Japan, this work was not the Ishiro Honda Godzilla we know and love. In 1956, the Americans got Godzilla, King of the Monsters, a Terry Morse-headed re-edit of Ashira Honda's work, the version Sontag likely saw and felt the need to defend. Now, it's tempting to say that the original Godzilla needs no defending. It's now classed as a classic, a film beyond traditional monster fare. At the time, though, the film was much maligned in both available versions. Japanese critics called it weird, due to its sincerity being at odds with being a monster movie. While... Western audiences were primarily reacting to the American edit. The film was also a victim to anti-Japanese and anti-genre film sentiment. It is hard for me to classify the film as more than a monster movie because I love monster movies. Films do not need to be more than them. It is also hard because in 1954, the typical monster movie did not exist. Yes, you had beasts from 20,000 Fathoms, but the codes and conventions had yet to be set. Godzilla is not more than a monster movie, it is just not what we expect from a monster movie and should be treated like the film it is, not the film it is expected to be. Yet Godzilla was still maligned even on its own terms. A notable and hilarious in retrospect criticism comes in the New York Times. After claiming that in Ikaru, Takeshi Shimura shows himself as the, quote, greatest actor of all time, they claimed of Godzilla, which also features Takeshi Shimura, that nobody in the film could act. But... Before I rush to defend Godzilla, it is important to remember I no longer need to, as it has taken its place as a classic. 
The film's genesis is interesting, though. First of all, it's very much the child of the legacy of King Kong, a movie so groundbreaking that it took 20 years for those who watched it to be inspired, grow up and learn the tools of the trade and learn new ways of wowing audiences. In a monster movie boom that would hit in the 50s and persist arguably in popular culture for a good 20 years for sinking to the level of subgenre, occasionally, like the monsters themselves, awakening from this slumber to hit mainstream appeal. Aiji Tsutsubaya, the special effects wizard behind Godzilla, loved King Kong. He had a personal print and studied it. When Toho first decided to make a monster movie, Tsutsubaya, inspired by King Kong and Beast from 25 Fathoms, wanted to make a stop motion work, but this was too expensive and led to the creation of a new cinematic and somewhat uniquely Japanese school of monster movie, the actor in the rubber suit. Originally, Tsuburaya wanted to make a squid movie. This was rejected. Uh, Producer Tomoyuki Tanaka wanted a dinosaur movie like 25 Fathoms. When Shigeru Kayama provided the initial treatment, it was a dinosaur film. The closeness and... An original name that even mentioned monsters from 2000 units down has led to Ray Harryhausen holding a bit of a grudge against Godzilla. It was much more popular than his film, though this is unfair. The film itself is so different from his work, and even the effects work bears little to no similarity. As film historian David Callett, who's written loads on Godzilla, puts it, Godzilla works because it is a deeply collaborative work. Let's start with Ashira Honda, a fascinating man, but one relegated to B-movie status by elitist gatekeepers of films. Um, his close and arguably best friend, Akira Kurosawa, lists Godzilla at number 34 in his 100 greatest films of all time, ahead of works by Ozu, Capra, Hawks, Fellini, Truffaut, Bergman, Antonioni. I could keep going. He specifically cites his love of the austere authorities who calmly marshal the fleeing citizen. Interestingly, simply due to the Aryan rating board, who approved the screenplay under the condition the Japanese military was shown with utmost care and respect. But... To return to Honda, his filmic career was delayed by being repeatedly drafted into the army, seemingly due to being blamed for an attempted coup that he had no link to. So, while his contemporaries started to make films, Honda was sent to war and hated it. He focused on staying alive, trained others to do so, and chose not to rise up the ranks. Notably, he was one of the few people to publicly speak out and write about the practice of comfort women, enforced prostitution on the front line. And while he was made to stay at comfort camps, he spoke to the women and tried to assist them as well as recorded their stories. He also served as a prisoner of war at the end of World War II in China and actually befriended the Chinese who requested that he stayed. He actually wished to return to his wife, so left, but was sent to have a gift of engraved proverbs. He would write these proverbs in his script going forwards. His favourite was this. Read good books, say kind words, do good deeds, be a good person. On the way back to his home, Tokyo, though originally he's in the agricultural village of Asahi until he moved age 10 when his father's appointed chief priest at the temple in Tokyo, then called Edo, his train passed Hiroshima. He witnessed ground zero from the train window, alluded to by the train's eye view of destruction in Godzilla, and was profoundly affected. The Tokyo and Japan he returned to was dominated by rubble, food shortages, and economic crisis, a melancholic vision arguably echoed in Godzilla. His first notable work was on Stray Dog, Kurosawa's acclaimed crime movie. As assistant director, the film was often praised for how well it captured post-war Japan, and these scenes were entirely directed by Honda, and you can see their thematic and visual echo in Godzilla. Kurosawa noted Honda's worth echo an attitude from the start, referring to him as the keeper of the grain after noting him paint perfect wood grain on a set where they were both starting out in junior roles. Honda did this so that the work of the director would be praised and would pay off. Is this because Honda is a perfectionist? 
Not really. I.G. Tsuburaya definitely was. But the beauty of Honda as a filmmaker is how he lifts others up, how he is interested in film as collaboration. Honda's directorial career started documentaries. The island parts of Godzilla are filmed in the Iseshime region. He made a documentary about the region, and his first feature film, The Blue Pearl, was set there. The script of this film brought a critical Kurosawa to tears, where he read it on a writing retreat the pair went on. The same retreat where Kurosawa wrote Rashomon. There you know. For The Blue Pearl, he and his crew invented a way of filming underwater not yet achieved in Japanese film. Godzilla ends by using the same techniques, a nice continuation. But the even nicer idea is that Honda was working on technically pioneering films from the start. In general, Godzilla could be seen as the film his career was building to. He had made a disaster film, Skin of the South, which started a career-running theme of capitalism as anti-environment. Before going into dramas, films about whaling, there's a popular rumour that the name Godzilla comes to the Japanese word for gorilla and whale, though it's never been officially corroborated. He made teen coming-of-age dramas, and the romantic triangle in Godzilla links to this focus on human drama and has anti-establishment leanings, and the verite focus on Tokyo and its destruction brings back Honda's origins as a documentarian. He has an eye for reality, even in a monster movie. He also worked on World War II movies, Eagle of the Pacific being his first work of I.G. Tutsubara, who had a stronger relationship with Honda than any other director. Tutsuburaya's work on World War II films was so impressive that American authorities during the occupation thought his recreation of Pearl Harbor was archive footage, a grim foreshadowing of the bizarre 1977 Italian version of Godzilla, or Godzilla, as it is popularly called. More on that later. Another Honda war film also foreshadows Godzilla, as Farewell Ramul looks at blind militarism, but through the lens of being a wartime melodrama about pilots. The thing to remember, though, is that Honda was just a director for hire. Godzilla only came about because the project fell through, an ill-fated Indonesian and Japanese collaboration that sought to heal, but that Indonesian collaborators felt was offensive. And a slot was left open. Producers Iwamori and Tomoyuki Tanaka wanted a monster movie to rival Kong and 20,000 Fathoms, which brings us back to Aiji Tsutsuburaya. Godzilla really is the combined effort of different sensibilities that came together for a singular work, Honda pushed the wide thematic heft, changing the entrance of Godzilla to 20 minutes in, as opposed to during the first storm and visual treatment, to create tension and suspense. He also pushed the themes around pacifism, nuclear fallout, and wider criticism of an arms race. The film was also greatly influenced by Masao Tamai, the cinematographer. The cinematographer had a number of Mikie Naruse films, notably When a Woman Ascends the Stairs. Tamai would not return for later films... But the look of Godzilla is so distinct, bringing an art beauty and focusing visually on some of the themes that would more link to Narase than Honda. The role of women in Godzilla is really interesting, with a progressive and empowering female lead, but also showing a knowledge of feminine struggle. But the moody camera work is as iconic as any other part of the wider film. The final parts of the puzzle, Tsuburaya, obviously, but also Haruo Nakajima and Akira Ifukube. First of all, Nakajima is Godzilla, the star of the show. He is shown briefly as a reporter, but this actor was otherwise in the suit, one of two actors. He took this very seriously, studying bears so he could move effectively. To return to Tsuburaya, though, the effects work is sublime, pioneer new techniques. Your average Japanese film shoot was 50 days. The effects work alone on Godzilla took 71 days. Tsuburaya was inventing things as he went, and it's all in camera, matte painting, superposition, and a hand puppet for close-ups. Now, you may have noted that even restored prints of Godzilla look a little bit rough, lots of perfections. Well, the film stock was so fragile, and the effects footage had to be filmed over Honda's live-action work. They had one try to get it all right, and this was complex stuff. 
this meant the film stock was handled a lot, so it was damaged in the process. You may think Godzilla looks aged, but it looks as it would have looked at the time. This is just how Godzilla looks, and it's a testament to its complexity. But all this work was very secretive. Tsuburaya would not even show the rushes to anybody outside of the crew. They're full of mistakes and errors, and even Honda had a hard time trying to convince people on set this was a serious movie. What this means is that Akira Ifukube's score is even more impressive. His Gojira, Gojira theme is his most iconic work. He's a fascinating composer, raised under the musical influence of Ainu folk tradition, and the man that had to bring sincerity to a film that needed music to work. His ominous and imposing score cut through any inherent silliness and elevates things perfectly. What's more impressive is he did all of this without ever seeing Godzilla in action. Tsuburaya would describe scenes to him, and he scored the film based on imagination alone. Maybe that's why it feels so imaginative and bold. The score captures the idea of Godzilla, an imagined reality beyond the capabilities of film. And that's why it's able to sell this idea to the audience. Afukabe's other great contribution was the roar. He wanted it to sound organic, but also feel at home in the soundtrack. The sound was produced by loosening the string of a contrabass, rubbing it with a leather glove, applying an echo and playing it back at a lower speed. The footsteps of Godzilla hitting amplifiers. Oh, and there's the prayer for peace moment, a beautiful musical interlude that causes a profound change of heart in a main character and sets the scene for the film's ending. This sequence was lengthened due to the song. The song is a Japanese female choir, a vast crowd singing for peace. We see it on a TV screen watched by our heroes, but it's never alluded to. This because the footage was added later, extended so the whole song would be kept in. Again, this was the combination of so many minds and talents, so enduringly popular. The Americans bought it, the Italians re-edited it, the French re-edited it, in a version that is seemingly lost. And Tokyo 1960, a Filipino re-edit of the Japanese version was made, but no footage has ever surfaced. So, while Sontag is right, many monster movies provide simplistic moralizing and water the world down. Godzilla does not do this. This is a film of scientific and moral debate. Now, Honda always loved science, but had no flair for it. And it's reflected by a number of severe scientific inaccuracies in the film. The film juxtaposes tradition and modernity, it makes clear parallels to a real world, and as it unfurls is a work of true moral relativism. Is a film much debated, and we will debate it further today. So is it anti-American? Is it just about Hiroshima and Nagasaki? How does it relate to the Lucky Dragon 5 incident? Is it blind to Japan's crimes? Is it anti-science? What does the victory of a bigger weapon over a symbolic weapon mean? Is it a glorification of suicide? What even is the central metaphor? Well, Let's find out. I'm Calvin. You're Stephen. We're yes. um, here in our... We dressed up as the scientists from Godzilla. We both have eye patches on and mm. our, our scientific jackets because we're ready to do some scientific deliberation. This is a podcast about essays, uh, conversation, <laughs> and ranking all the monsters. Yeah, we've decided that um, Kaiju Cinema, you know, it's been talked about a lot, but no one's ranked every single ki- every single Kaiju film ever made. And um, nobody ever has. This- yeah, yeah, it's uh, too dangerous. It's like Godzilla itself, you know. It's like creating the um, the Oxygen Destroyer. Like, is it too much? But we're going to be the ones that rank every Kaiju movie, starting with the Godzilla franchise. Yeah, and nobody's ever ranked the Godzilla franchise, so we're we're proud to bring no. that that content as well. Uh, but there are so many off branches in kaiju movies. Um, pretty much anything with a big monster uh, applies. You're the kaiju expert. Uh, I I've barely scratched the surface. I think I've seen less than ten kaiju movies total. Um, so <laughs> I, I guess what I have to ask first: What's a kaiju movie? 
yeah so kaiju um, or kaiju ego which literally means monster movie it's just that i mean people get you know, highfalutin about this. It literally just means monster. Um, so these are just monster movies. Um, realistically, the first one is King Kong, um, the first monster movie that then lays the template that's then picked up by 20,000 Fathoms and then Godzilla, and then it goes from there. So films in which there's a giant monster that usually attacks something, usually humanity, usually wrecks a city. I think we'll have an interesting balance of takes here because I am a King Kong guy. I believe in his empathy <laughs> and capacity for human um, human feelings and proximity to the audience, but uh, you're you're a big Godzilla guy, and, and I think I, I see there's a lot to love there. So I'm going on that journey with you first. Yeah, yeah, this is very much a project for me to indoctrinate you into the world of Godzilla. So when we do finally get to Godzilla versus Kong, you can be the Godzilla guy because um, I like King Kong. Um, the first film obviously has big racial issues, but so do some Godzilla movies. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's legacy in in cinema is undeniable. But you're right; it is a, it is a more human work, and they do attempt to humanize Godzilla later. But mostly, he is just he's just monster. He is just whatever the metaphor needs to be at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems. Like in some Japanese storytellings, there's just this idea that you could fit a character into a mold, that there are expansions of ideas on characters, mm. something like Yojimbo or even uh, Mario from the video games. You could think <laughs> that they're very flexible in their storytelling because their mythology is very flexible. Yeah, yeah. And, and it also just links into a, like a wider legacy of like Japanese horror in general, of this idea of um, a revenant or a curse that comes back that spreads out an aura and here that's done through radiation, but very much this like monster of the past, often like a witch's curse or something else you can see in like older Japanese horror um, here just through weird dinosaur man. <laughs> and today we're discussing the original uh, Gojira and as well the US edit of it, which uh, King of the Monsters. You know, I, I appreciated it in the past. Um, I, I always enjoyed the original Godzilla. And I don't know how available it was to America until uh, very recently, at least in my life. I, I don't feel like it was ever present. I felt like we had the sequels around and uh, it was kind of a fun thing that was on, um, you know, uh, more cultish TV channels every once in a while. But Godzilla was never, ever present in my life until the 90s American version. So uh, for me, a uh, very, you know, strange relationship to getting there. But uh, now that I, you know, now that I'm fully immersing in it, there's there's so much to dig into here. Yeah, like the, the legacy of like Godzilla outside Japan is really interesting because like, I don't know, I came to Godzilla quite late. So my first Godzilla film mm-hmm. technically was um, Gajira. Um, so I think that's kind of like led my relationship with it. But yeah, for most people and even quite a lot of people in Japan, like, you know, home video and home releasing video is like Godzilla is the film you saw at the cinema, you didn't see at all, and then was just like re-edited around the world. So it was not found or talked about. And as I alluded to in the, in the intro, like Godzilla was given some critical thought, but we'll never know if they're actually talking about Godzilla or Godzilla King of the Monsters. And they are very different films, very different. One is terrible, um, for example. And there's there's a strong base there. So like, I understand the impulse, but um, there's a lot of... Uh, massaging and controlling the messages there to get it to an american audience that's very uncomfortable um i bet we'll get into a lot of that in the ranking Uh, Mm. there's so much to get to just with gojira uh before we begin that yeah so so you've seen um the original godzilla before then yeah yeah and i think i appreciate it as a well i think i did what you said i appreciated it as a monster movie and um, this time I found so much more value in there. I mean, I always knew the themes and uh, how it relates to our um, perspective of war and weaponry, uh, but there's a, there's something to it that 
I, I just viewed it as an art film this time and it, it worked so much more. Yeah, which I think I links to a lot of like the crew on it. Like you've got just this heavy hitters of just like Japanese talent because like the Japanese studio system just like having these like great figures at this point just being thrown at a monster movie that was given so much money. I mean, this is the same year actually that um, Seven Samurai came out and mm. I think um, Sancho the Bailiff as well. Like, so it's a, it's a hell of a year for Japanese <laughs> film. Um, and this was like treated that same way. And it was very much the push of being like, let's take this movie seriously in a way that they weren't for a long time afterwards. And they weren't even trying to be serious for a long time afterwards. Um, I think like, let's get into the, like, the, the central kind of like thrust then. Cause like, yeah. this is a, a debated film. Um, and I, I said in my thing at the beginning, like it is a, a really kind of like morally relative film. Um, I've been having a debate with this of some friends recently. What do you think the film is about? What do I feel uh, Gitcher is about? I feel that, it is about um, the environment and our uh, mm. race to get to weapons and kind of a a warning about what will happen, but also that we may not be able to prevent it, that what we do to prevent these things might be as disastrous as what we've done to create them. Yeah, I, I remember like watching it for the first time and like I have a, like an overactive like mind that's just like always trying to find like messages and things and just like yes. will not shut up. It's and a good film like, for that. Yeah, I was like, what is this one? Is this one? Is this one? It's like, is this like hypocritical? Is this hypocritical? So it's like, here's the monster. Oh, it's brought by this. And now they're going to kill the monster. And I'm in my mind being like, but if they can kill the monster with a greater weapon, doesn't that show that greater weapons are even better? And then it twists it at the end with like yeah. the suicide scene of this idea of, and when it comes back to for me, is this this idea? It's the Pandora's box idea of this film is very clearly anti-militarism um, mm. and anti-weaponry, but it's very aware of the fact that once you've opened up Pandora's box, um, the spiral keeps going and the spiral has to be ended. And I think that's why the ending is absolutely perfect. Though I have read a lot about how it deifies suicide in quite an uncomfortable way. And I get that. Um, but the ending of like this person that unleashes his weapon in a focused way and then makes it so it can't be used again is the perfect ending for the, if we keep messing with these spiraling layers of conflict, it will keep escalating and escalating. And at one point it needs to stop and stop forever. I watched a documentary on HBO just that I needed more historical background on um, white light, black ray and the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, it begins just with that uh, brilliant uh, Einstein quote. I do not know how the third world war will be fought, but I could tell you what they will use in the fourth rocks. I just think that's a perfect statement about uh, what happens in Godzilla and that Pandora's box of ever expanding weaponry and how it only leads to one conclusion, which is a ultimate destruction, like leading back to where uh, we began ultimately. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I think this time I was struck by how interesting Dr. Serizawa is as a character, um, who is, for those who haven't seen the film, though I recommend you do so, he is the doctor um, that makes yeah. the weapon that kills um, Godzilla. Um, spoilers. Um, and in the American version, he is introduced differently and his weapon is introduced like really close towards the beginning. We'll talk about why that is the case later in this it's left to the end because it's a it's, it's a point to be debated it feels a bit like a deus ex machina oh we have the weapon that does it but it's because it's more interesting in a debate than it is in that and um there are a lot of like accidental um coincidences between him and oppenheimer mm. um so oppenheimer is like arguably the father of the nuclear bomb and like the nuclear bomb was made under the auspices of we need to have a weapon that can outdo nazi germany um but then that war ended, that sphere of the war ended, and we didn't need to use the bomb. And then his um, bosses were like, okay, let's make a bigger bomb. And he was like, I thought we were doing this to kill the Nazis. I'm not comfortable with this. 
and he actually stepped away from the project and then he was labeled as a, a communist sympathizer and was like blacklisted for that and like serizawa takes on that role kind of like accidentally of he is deeply involved in creating this oxygen destroyer which is ridiculous it's like doesn't even make any sense um but he does it out of this like there's a claim partway through that he says he he's waiting until something good can be done with his weapon um so there is that belief in that that science can heal but in destruction and i think like honda and co here of that idea going directly against that that idea that actually i don't care what view you have making weapons and it, it reminds me actually of like um nobel of the nobel prize who you know inventor of dynamite and it's so mm. important for um mining and the like but it's inherently a weapon and it's what do we unleash what does it do and then godzilla is that as well the beast of it is by itself it's just a thing and then when it's unleashed, it just destroys. And then you've got um, Takashi Shimura's doctor, who I forget the name of, um, who is just obsessed with Godzilla as an idea. So our fascination with destruction and the natural capacity of destruction. I suppose my biggest question about Godzilla and what he comes from is he, does he exist within the universe before the movie is my big question about Godzilla. <laughs> So this is a thing that is retconned several times in the series okay. um, in ridiculous ways. Uh, some other one, there's a movie we're going to watch later, Calvin, Jesus Christ, um, which implies that Godzilla is a dinosaur from that survived during World War II. Oh, God. Um, and really? Then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then aliens um, went to try and like mutate it. So it. It gets so ridiculous. And then this mutated Godzilla helps to fight the American soldiers and save it. That bit's real rough. Uh, we'll get to that movie. I don't like that one. Um, but yeah, like uh, Honda, I was reading about this. Honda specifically wanted to keep it very ambiguous because um, he wanted it to be open to many things. So we're not supposed to know what Godzilla comes from, though Takeshi Shimura does say partway through that like, um, that these bombs will keep happening and these things do up. Um, the beginning of the film is is supposed to be a parallel to a thing at the time, so Japanese audiences would know this. So it opens with a ship going out to where we know actually Godzilla is, and these ships start dying. Um, this is the, as alluded to, um, Lucky Dragon 5 incident. So there were H-bomb tests um, a bit further afield um, being done by the Americans. Um, and what this led to is like, radiation and radiation damage and there was a, a fishing vessel the lucky dragon five which contained the first person to get killed by these tests um this boat went out there and it was sabotaged by that so this was like very recent news um like a couple of years before mm. so it's definitely directly alluding to that and there's even like a number five boy on the boat in the beginning and actually the first person to die is the communications operator in the boat and that's who it actually was in in real life so this idea that godzilla is seen to be 100% the product of radiation, mm -hmm. but the film seems to imply that he is a dinosaur that is radiated. I think importantly, he just is. He is just like, he is more symbol than he is reality. He just comes and he is the bomb. He is radiation. He's the thing that happens because of historical guilt. And there is like a revenant quality to him where he's come back mm. from something. Um, it seems like he is somehow alive, like in the legacy of, uh, Japanese mythology within the movie too, like you say, uh, midway through, uh, it seems to allude that there there was this presence, or there always is this presence with humanity. But I like him as a metaphor, like a watchguard uh, for um, humanity's relationship to weaponry, and like this, like we say, mm. this uh, constant uh, arms race. It's 
that's really interesting though because like i think there's been quite a lot of like profound misreading of this film mm-hmm. though i get it um a lot of people see it as being a profoundly anti-american work they do though actually if you <laughs> if, if you look at it there is no kind of like specific reference to america there are a few references that were cut out in the americanized version i feel but... like that's a, i feel like that might be us projecting something into the film I, exactly and, and and like um honda has said this is it's primarily american critics who have been like just looking yeah. for axe to grind with it um but like, they, like there is like this this central read that um, Godzilla purely represents the crimes done to Japan by America and the continued legacy of that. I think that's a really simplistic way to look at it um, because I think the way, as you said, that Godzilla is linked to ancient Japan and what the first place he arrives on is that island that obviously Han has that relationship with and mm. he is known of in folklore. And the first thing that he does is like destroy this island town, but also a helicopter that he has this like battling past destroy modernity. And I think the film is very aware of Japan's past and the sins of Japan's past and empire. And like, there is now a modern reading that he is like the animated sins of the past of Japan. That there's this sense of like, he is the war guilt. He is the imperial guilt. And just like, that really stands out to me because I focus on the way that he moves. The way that Godzilla moves is because of the suit, but he looks in pain. He looks shambling. He looks horrible. He's almost oily, which links to like the, like the capitalist logic of it. He is this like, as we keep saying, this like revenant of pain, like animated defeat and destruction that is very much as in conversation with Japan's past as it is what America did to Japan. I think it's so much wider than just like America messed up this country, though it did to a greater extent, but it is so aware of Japan also did great sins on itself and will continue to. I love the idea of these older films that are shot with like this grittiness. And, and as you say, like this, this thing, just like in the film, it's baked in and this is how Godzilla was, but, but also maybe it's just really hard to move in that suit. That kind of yeah, thing know, allows so, so much cool. reading. Like you're able to find all that and it could have just been very hard to move in the suit. And it was a, you know, like a rough around the edges production to get there. Well, I think that's where the modern view is so fascinating because I think at the time, a big reason why people would view it as anti- anti-American is because the monster movie was the American movie. It was King Kong and it's with Bats of Fathoms. So this is a film in which the American filmic construct attacks Japan. So you can see the reading as being very much, look, it's an American genre attacking Japan and Japan dies in fiery hellish destruction, which just looks amazing. But I think ironically now, it's hard to view Godzilla as anything but uniquely Japanese. We don't we don't view him as a Kong knockoff. We view him as a, as a Japanese creation. So I think that is lost to time. Though I can imagine that hitting a lot closer at the time because it was new to Japanese cinema. Um, for, for me, everything here is new as well because, mm. because I have only seen King Kong and recent uh, Godzillas. There's, I think I'm going to bring a different perspective both to the conversations and the ranking. And I think it's going to be valuable that you have all this installed faith in it but then to obviously rank these in our objective scientific fashion, mm. I think it's important to have an outsider who's like a, my significant test for each one is how do they stand alone as a movie and do they work as this standalone piece of art? So uh, for me, I have no fandom in the game. So I think that's yeah. valuable to have both perspectives. So so does Godzilla work for you then Absolutely. as a standalone piece outside of historical? So, so why so much does this film work? Just if this was the only Godzilla, would it still be a great film? For me, I think I, like I said, I think I had some um, dissonance in the way I approached it the first time, because when I looked at it this time, I realized, um, like, Jaws, there's, you know, there's not very much Jaws in that movie, and then I get to this no. movie, and there's there's almost no Godzilla, there's a, he's in very little of the movie, there's a lot more human element, there's, there's what I thought I was asking for in the other ones, which is a, a human balance, but 
uh, uh, not like the American movies do, because I want a human balance that metaphorically means something when the monster shows up. So for me, this establishes all of that while also having this gritty uh, horror mm. feeling to it. And yeah, uh, as you say, it relates to parts of history. And for me, anything filmed in black and white that we look at today is a way of us looking back and saying that's something that happened in the past. So in a way, it is all document. Um, it's all documentary in a way that we look back and we see the history of cinema and things that are filmed in black and white, not as a choice, but um, just as a time. Um, so for me, there is like a grittier realism. I know you and our friend have argued with me about that, but for me, there is a grit and a, a really tenacious thing about Godzilla that it, it hits really close to a moral reality, at least, if not one that's practically created by the effects. Um, I think it's so close to a moral guilt and um I think mm. if Americans have that response to it also, I think it's a victory of the film that uh, it's allowing them to fill that guilt into it. Yeah. Uh, they're being criticized if they have that feeling. So uh, I'm glad they feel uh, upset. I, I think that's a really good point because if anything, it's, it's criticizing militarism. And if the yeah. audience sees that as them, then <laughs> yeah, reflect on that. No, <laughs> that's good. Be criticized. That, mm, that's, yeah, no. that's really valuable for me is that when these things are art, then they should engage those responses. Um, they should offend the person <laughs> who it's about. <laughs> it's like when you write a song about someone and they hear it and they're like, did you write that about me? You know, I, that's the response I want from American critics. <laughs> I've, I've said to you before, I think I said this about Promising Young Woman and about, I'm um, sorry to bother you, that I like films that offend the right people. I like it when it's like, I hate this movie. I'm like, yeah, you should. It's against you. Um, yeah, so, yeah um, no, I'm a fan it, of that. And you realize that satire never really approaches the people that it needs to. It never affects them and changes mm. their mind. They just watch uh, satire or metaphor and they get easily offended or they feel like it's an outrageous thing. Um, so the people that hate, like, uh, sorry to bother you or like Godzilla or something it's like you know maybe there's something else to look at there yeah look to yourself first yes um I think I think the last thing on on, on Godzilla I mean because it's going to just unless you've got some practical questions about it of uh, the human characters that you mentioned I think are I mean let's be honest like some of the acting in it is is not very good um <laughs> Some of it is. Um, Takeshi Shimura is great, and I love that with his like tie flopping out. And mm -hmm. I do one thing I like about Takeshi Shimura's character is he is a caricature in so many other films. He's the person that wants to keep Godzilla alive. Mm -hmm. And there are so many movies that have this maniacal guy that's just like, I want to keep the evil alive. And you're like, well, that's just evil. <laughs> it's right. That's an archetype. But he is deeply sympathetic, and he seems to understand the guilt that he's causing. He just wants to preserve science, and would the film end by looking at him and like looking at his sadness of this is a man that's actually reckoned with what it means to keep Godzilla alive and has made the decision that he thinks that some things are more important than other things and that weighs heavy on his soul and the film deals with that rather than just being like look at this crazy man that just wants to leave Godzilla alive so I think he's brilliant and Takeshi Shimura is just again one of the greatest actors of all time um but Dr. Serizawa for me is 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 the real is the key of this movie and of course, you have the love triangle, which for the time in Japan is wild. You have this female figure that's rejecting um, arranged marriage and that knows um, their father will um, just like blacklist them for that. Um, one thing, Serizawa, is the first time he came on screen, I was like, oh, no. Because <laughs> he appears with eye patch, and I'm like, ah, I get it. Eye patch man is it. evil. I love yeah. it. That's why we're both dressed in eye patches. It's, it's exactly hard to see the screen evil. as we podcast, by the way, but uh, we have to make these concessions for the show. 
but you want to be like, ah, oh, yes, of course, it's the it's the Doctor Evil guy. It's it's here. Hello, I'm evil scientist. Um, but he's not that. And it's like what I thought was going to be like an ableist um, depiction, like a physiognomic depiction, is actually just like no, that's just the scar of the war on him. They say that that's just the war did. And to me, my my take this way is Doctor Serizawa is Godzilla. Um, they have almost the same arc in the film. Of, they do. Yeah. He is he is the scarred past brought into it, and we see Godzilla twenty minutes in from a distance and we see Serizawa at a similar time just off the side of the picture it's just there but his influence hangs over it and then the next time we see them are these symbolic acts of destruction now both these creatures have been like pushed I say creatures um, yes, <laughs> like humans. but he is he is like yeah. a creature as well yeah. Yeah, but both these figures have been like pushed away by society and wish to exist outside of society, then are brought back into it by the machinations of others, um, ironically, kind of each other somewhat. Mm. And the first time we see Serizawa properly is in his lab, so pushed down, and it's the he's dealing with water imagery, and Godzilla comes up from the water, and he's dealing with a fish, and at the end we have the fish decaying with Godzilla. So like they're really aligned, and that goes back to this woman being so much deeper just anti-American, because Serizawa is Japan and the scientific progress of Japan and what Japan's doing going forwards. And he unleashed is the oxygen destroyer on the fish tank we don't see that until later but he does it then um, and it shocks um the female lead and i was so struck by the symbolic similarity of him just killing those fish and godzilla killing the um the um, island town and both of these seemingly pointless acts of destruction mm. against what are these very very small things but these larger beings to like set up disproportion and then later we have the idea of these two things, the two biggest weapons, the Oxygen Destroyer and Godzilla, and they must come together. So for me at this point, the film is about like humans' capacity to be a monster. And the same way that Godzilla is scarred and pained, Serizawa is scarred and pained and is ostracizing those around him. And then we get to that beautiful sequence, which is the um, the musical sequence, which I just love so much of the, the Prayer for Peace song. Yeah. And for me, that's where the film is because Serizawa watches that. And that's where I think Honda steps in and makes the saying of humans can be monsters, but here's why we are not have the capacity not to be, because we can think and we can be moved by art and we can be aspirational. And the idea that Serizawa hears that wonderful prayer for peace and is moved by it, Godzilla couldn't be moved by that. So yes, there is a monstrous heart to humanity, but there is a soulful heart to humanity. And that leads him to a symbolic self-sacrifice that is problematic mm. but is also deeply beautiful and then you've got like the killing of godzilla being linked directly to the oxygen destroyer so like that way that they navigate through the film to make such a thorny metaphor i just this is one of my favorite films and it's stuff like that is is exactly why i love it so much i mean i mean we should talk tokenly about the american version because jesus christ we both had to watch it um, so this US version, it's I don't know, I watched the David Callot commentary, which made me appreciate it more, but I still think this movie is trash. Um <laughs> it is kind of interesting. Like this film was part of like a movement of international film to America. Um, because at the time, um Rashomon was very popular mm. and had won awards, but people did not see it. Nobody had seen Rashomon and no one actually cared. Well, and that's not how I remember it. <laughs> it's a Simpsons and a Rashomon joke very good um, so this brings us to Terry Morse who is like journeyman dude um, his like part is in like noir movies and crime movies which you can see in the setup of King of the Monsters and his belief was people didn't watch Rashomon because it had subtitles mm -hmm. so he was going to bring Godzilla which he'd heard was great and he thought would reach an audience and he was going to dub it um, now usually when you dub a movie you do a process called, of looping so yeah. you make um, the actors talk and talk and talk until it fits. He went, no, <laughs> he 
got the actors to just speak a script. They didn't even know what the script was for. They didn't. Um, they didn't know the movie. No. That sounds like a very much how we do things today. I doubt. Uh, I doubt any Marvel actors know what movie they're in. Yeah, and they thought it was a radio piece. They had no idea. Really? And then, just, <laughs> and then he just placed their dialogue over the film. It's ridiculous though because there's no attempt to match it. At points, characters speak. English and then Japanese. At points, someone speaks in Japanese and they're translated, and it's not what they said at all. Later, the film came back to Japan and subtitled and just confused the Japanese audience because they'd be seeing it being spoken, but that's not what they said. What the hell? Um, so he ruined it in that way. And he also thought that the the logic of the film wasn't American, basically, mm-hmm. that it didn't build up like an American film because Honda was all about building suspense and tension. So he was just like, all right, noir style, let's start at the end, make it exciting, which is just a weird start. She's like, but wait, what is going on? He said, let's have a reporter as his catalyst, give the American view and let's introduce the auction destroyer early on. And it plays out like just a conventional um, crime film, basically, but a Godzilla movie and it's boring. And like the way that he speaks over the Japanese actors is pretty racist and yeah, like it uses Jap it uses Japanese voice as like Zelda sound effects being like blah, 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 blah. It's, awful, that yeah. but it's awful. Yeah, I don't like the idea that they've become sound clips. And I feel like yeah. if Godzilla were a haunting elegy and a message movie about like dangers of escalating weapons, I feel like the US version just whitewashes any possible meeting. Yeah you could possibly get from that you also said something interesting about radio dramas there <laughs> a connection to like war of the worlds and uh, how we yeah. uh, perceive these things as dangers and a meaningful connection to like a radio drama or something that uh, i imagine when people in japan were first going to the movie it must have had such a great impact and I can't imagine any impact from the American version. I could see why it was so popular, though. It was it, the it first was. international film to break over a million. It made two oh, million. Sake. I mean, the stuff. The thing is that there are parts that are still incredible because Godzilla is an incredible movie. If yeah, those parts of just Godzilla going around destroying things. It's there's still value. It's still well, uh, six out of ten without the racist American additions to that. Um, there, well, there's you, still something do you know? There. Do you know what films came before it though? Because it was part of a process of like introducing the international film. Um, it's, so the films that be came like before it, Kurosawa, right before. Um... Close. Um, the films that came before it were um, Rossellini's War trilogy. Um, so okay. it started with um, Open City, and then Paisan, and then um, Year Zero. And for a long time, you could own, and they were dubbed. They were like people don't want to watch the movie, so we dubbed them. And those were pretty popular, but still not enough. So they were like people want blockbusters, so they brought mm-hmm. the blockbuster instead. And he was proved right. Um, which is a real shame. People loved the movie at the time. Yeah. And I despise it purely because anything that's good about it is from Godzilla. Right. And I could just watch that movie. <laughs> I don't know if there's, well, I couldn't imagine any technical value to going back and watching it except to understand how Americans viewed mm. Godzilla as a movie and how we had to, I think there's a absolution of guilt there where we're, we're trying to look for something um, like you said about the American response to how that movie makes us feel, uh, I think yeah. the I think the American version might be doing a a lot of work on its own to kind of take that out. Just Raymond Burr there as well as oh, what's yeah. he called? He's named he's coincidentally named the same as a comedian. Oh, what camera he's called? Um... Uh, <laughs> oh, he's uh, Steve Martin. Yeah, he's called so he's called Steve Martin, which is hilarious, um, but obviously predates that. Um, 
And mm. just like his insertion, I mean, some people like it because it gives it a narrative. Even in the commentary that I watched, they said that they like his speeches. I hate his speeches as he just imposes this like arch. It's like they need an American validity to make it make sense. It needs to hurt an American person. And it changes the scope of the film that Godzilla is a threat to the world. I'm like, Godzilla isn't a threat to the world. It's a specific allegory about um, escalating weapons. It's not about how monsters might come out and destroy New York next time. <laughs> and that opens up that reading and I hate it. I hate it yeah. so much. Yeah, it it doesn't lend any valuable readings to the film. I don't think there's anything you could get from the US version not in the Japanese one already of any value. I, I don't, I, I mean, I think this ranking will be fairly obvious for the first one. Yeah, um, but to complicate things, I tried to watch the French version, but I, you can't find it, sadly. Okay. Um, and I tried to find the Filipino version, but it's never surfaced. But that sounds fascinating because the French version is a re-edit of the American version, but the Filipino one is... The Japanese version with Filipino actors chucked in. God knows what that is. I that sounds amazing. and that makes me think that maybe there are countless other Godzillas out there from different <laughs> nations just making Godzilla. Oh, and we're just gonna find them. We're gonna find the wonder, magnificent Ambersons and then Godzilla and oh. I wonder in total then how many, you know, including versions for different countries, how many Godzillas there really are. We might be doing I, this podcast a lot longer than we bargained for. Yeah. Well, I watched the Italian one, so you don't have to. Um at some point put it. All right, Catherine, when we're allowed to do parties again, put this up in the background of a party because it is wild. Um, this released in 1977, the official greatest year for films. Um, that's science as well. And it's because um, Italian filmmaker Lu Luigi Cozzi, um, uh, King Kong was popular, so he yeah. thought that he should bring Godzilla to Italy, which is of such course. a strange leap of logic because the new King Kong was about to come out or it just came out. I forget the um, chronology. Um, but he made some escalatingly strange decisions so he wanted to get godzilla couldn't get it got the rights to king of the monsters instead was like fine but then he was just like this is an american it must be an italian now so he dubs it in it in italian and then he's like you know what this isn't enough people don't want black and white movies i'll colorize this <laughs> he did not know how to colorize it so he just put a weird translucent gel over every frame and it's impossible to watch it is just Anyone listening at home, just find clips of it. It is just a psychedelic freak out of a movie. It's terrifying looking. Oh. It's all just near. And he was just like, hmm, this isn't exciting enough. So he inserted footage from other films into it. <laughs> what other in films? <laughs> including the sequel to Godzilla, which he did not have the rights to. Including the Japanese version of Godzilla, which he did not have the rights to. And archive footage of the Second World War. <laughs> which is terrifying for all the wrong reasons. That I mean, I know the metaphor is strong, but that doesn't work. Jesus, and it's horrible to watch because you're like, yeah, Godzilla smash. You're like, oh, that's a war crime, Jesus Christ. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's just, well, I always... luckily, it's almost impossible to view, but it's fascinating. It has an awesome, like, um, industrial soundtrack added to it as well. It's really hardcore, but it's a I, bad movie. I always said to myself watching uh, Godzilla that all I really want is Giallo uh, Gojira. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Oh, it's cool. I would say it doesn't count, probably, but it's called Cozilla. People call it Cozilla. Uh, I feel like it. I feel like it probably counts. I think we. I think okay. we do include it. It's. It's too strange not to. You know, why not make three in our first list? I do kind of love it, um, even though it obviously is <laughs> deeply improper. Also, the subtitles are baked into the film, yeah. and you know, like how um, Bong Joon Ho referred to like the one inch barrier that we've got across. Well, yeah. let me introduce to you the half the frame barrier, where they like paragraphs of text covering the impossible to watch film anyway oh you know what watch it it's great it sounds like it has a much larger barrier than a uh, bong ever imagined we'd have to yeah. deal with but uh 
again, bars around, I once was in a bar at university and they used to like, well, I was several times, I was in Bose, but I've been to several bars, um, but they would like play random films. It was like this weird, like proto nerd bar. And at one time <laughs> they were just playing Grave of the Fireflies on mute. Oh, and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> What an atmosphere, mood center. Yeah, it was a bad atmosphere. Um, so I think instead of that, just put Godzilla on just like loop and just just vibe to just this unwatchable <laughs> film. Unwatchable, uh, that could be a good thing. I, I think it is uh, important that we got around to even the Japanese version having some B-movie elements. I think that mm. really paves the way for sequelizing it. If it were um, effectively a Kurosawa film, which is all, you know, serious actors and a very steady means of filmmaking and a uh, message movie that just wraps up itself. Uh, I don't know if we'd but, have a hundred sequels. But then the thing is to say, like, um, like this is more like a Kurosawa film, we'll admit, like a Shirohan sure and Kurosawa were yeah. literally best friends. And like, he worked on Kurosawa movies. He worked for the last few Kurosawa movies. He was co-script writer on Kurosawa's last four films. They were really good friends, really close friends and collaborators. Mm. But the critical establishment wants to malign the Godzilla man and wants to venerate Kurosawa. I love Kurosawa. I've seen every Kurosawa film that you can find. I love Kurosawa movies. Um, but like Honda is a big part of those. And I don't think that's worse. I think it's valuable mm. to make the um, the B movie thing. I mean, I'm a horror guy. I, I love yeah, horror too. movies, and I, you know, I, I'm just, I just think it. If it were just an art movie, it wouldn't it wouldn't mean the same thing. To keep expanding it, um, I don't think you can make a hundred of uh, <laughs> high and lows. I think you can make a hundred Godzillas. Yeah, and I hope they do. Yes, I I hope so too. Now. Um, I never want this podcast to end. I'm having a great time. There you time, go. So. Um, all right. So how are we ranking these films? Yeah. Let's, what is uh, the let's number one the kaiju ranking. movie of all time? Uh, we have three to begin with, right? So I know very difficult deliberations. I'm buttoning up my um, my lab coat now, uh, adjusting I'm getting my a pointer eye-patch. so I can point a thing longer so I can point at things. Yes. Um, for, from your teaching. Uh, I'm sure mm. you have one of those available. Mm. Do you use one during your teaching? No, I, I I project my voice and just shout okay. a lot. I don't yeah. actually do that. I'm, I'm I'm a nice man. Which um, is good setup, I think, and a good career that uh, for you to do 15 minute podcast introductions. <laughs> yeah. Year nine have already told me to quote shut up about Godzilla movies. <laughs> have you? <laughs> so, wait, is this just the script that you use in your classes? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't want to teach this novel. Do you want to hear about the history of Godzilla? No, we don't. <laughs> I bet you've done it in each class, and, and I yeah. I love you for it. So thank you. Yeah. Steve. he's got a he's got a brain in his butt. More on that later. So I guess from my outsider perspective, I think it's pretty easy here, and I think it's yeah. probably easy for you. We have three, and I think I know where they fit. I I have the ranking in my head. All right, what's going at the bottom? Um, Gojira. No, no, I'm. I'm not even going to merit that with a, with a joking response. That is a crime. <laughs> um, I think. The U.S. version must go at the bottom. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't even think there's a curious interest like there is for the Italian one. I know my one-star review on Letterboxd is deeply unfair, um, yeah. but I don't care. I, I despise this movie and everything it stands for, which is basically nothing. I um, don't think that's unfair, then. I think if you despise everything a movie stands for, maybe a one <laughs> is is even high, I think. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm at one and a half. Because I love all the Godzilla stuff in it, I can't yes. really detach from thinking there are things worth watching in it. I just don't think you should watch this movie to see those things. Yeah, no, I agree. If if if, if 
in an alternate universe, I was raised and could only watch this movie. I would probably have loved it. I'd be like, what a cool movie. This narrative is strange, but this Godzilla just wrecks shit. And I love that. But that isn't not me. So yeah, it is the worst Godzilla movie. Interestingly, I have a ranked list of all the Godzillas that I've seen, yeah. um, which is all of the mainstream entries and some spinoffs. And uh, it is not bottom. It's not. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> what's in store for me? <laughs> it's even, it's like, it's even above some of the Japanese ones. Oh, God. Oh, God. Ooh. What is ahead, Stephen? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, arguably a Japanese one. Maybe I, I don't know if that counts. Okay. Well, you'll find out later. You'll find out later. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we're going to get to kaijus that aren't Godzilla that are well below that, that merit eventually. I, I mean, well, there's hundreds of kaiju movies and we're yeah. doing all of them, so. I will make you do a Gamera podcast at some point, and I'm so excited about that. I think I'm most excited about Gamera because as little as I know about Godzilla, all I know about Gamera is that he does flips on a on a bar. Oh, that's only one movie as well. There's a lot of Gamera to get through to get to him doing acrobatics. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, I'll delay it as movie. long as possible then. <laughs> but I think it's the fifth movie. That's the fifth. Oh, fuck. Well, the other great thing is we could also skip around wherever we want to. I don't think we, we have any. Uh, I don't think we have anything bearing on us to be like. Let's do the next four Godzilla movies that aren't that exciting together. We could be like, let's do the host and uh, the next Godzilla movie or something. I can right? say, Calvin, Atragon is a very strange movie that I have thoughts about. Watch Atragon with me. I mean, maybe even we get uh, the Gamera in with a less exciting Godzilla movie and do something cool there. Mm-hmm. So, what is number? Two. I think obviously it's going to be Gojira. No, no I'm, I'm I need better jokes for the show. It's true. We'll work on that. We'll get Bruce Valanchian. Um, but for now, um, Godzilla, I think, is number two. <laughs> I think second. because it's, I, I think at least it's a curiosity, which I can't even say for the American version. Yeah, I, it, it feels like installation art. Like if I yeah. was at the Tate Modern and like that was, I'd be like, what a cool thing to do with Godzilla. I think it's really, I mean, it's fucked up, but I think it's, it's something that appeals to me in like a ground grindhousey way to just yeah. put clips that are unauthorized in your movie and yeah. just fuck around and put gel on something that that would look <laughs> slimy i think if it were in color so i think like a gel on godzilla doesn't make the least sense in the world what's fascinating um, to me because like they're both from the same idea of being like we think this could make loads of money and godzilla actually did really well um we think is? this could make loads of money yeah i know <laughs> we think this could make loads of money whereas like king of the monsters is like such a like clinical take on how do we make money out of this thing yeah and make lots of sensible business decisions which are unartistic but are sensible business decisions and this is just a madman being like i don't know this or this or this and i will always prefer the madman movie um i feel like that uh yeah, I feel like it's like the early marvelization of cinema there. That just what are money making decisions yeah. rather than uh, artistic or uh, directing decisions. Of, it's really taking any direction out of a movie, I think, to do something like that. At least putting like fucked up World War II. I mean, that's a conscious <laughs> choice that a director has to It is fucked make. up. It's really horrible. I mean, that's that's something the director had to go out of his way to put in the movie. I, yeah. The American version is the least going out of your way possible, I think. Yeah, no, I I agree. So Godzilla, it's, it's less two. than. I mean, it's less than doing nothing. That's how inferior it is. Like to me, making that is less of an effort than uh, translating it. So. And uh, 
before we give the king of the monsters or the ranking of monsters um, to Godzilla or Gojira, um, and there is a debate about what you should call it. Um, it's an interesting thing, but look it up in yeah. your own time. I'm not going to bore you with it uh, because it's about transliteration and actually both are certainly correct. So, you know, don't be a nerd about it. Say what you want. Um, I think we should specify the scientific process is we are ranking these not on which is the best movie, no, but which is the best kaiju movie. And I think that's very different. I think, yeah, I think kaiju matters a lot. And for me, like I said, I might bring more of the movie into it because I've mm. seen so few kaiju that I don't have a scale yet. Um, so I think that balance between you knowing what the kaiju movie is and me knowing, you know, something about art cinema, at least, I think we could get a middle ground where we have, yeah. where have where we have an effective rating. What I'm saying, though, is that Godzilla might not be top forever. It may be the best movie we talk about, yeah, but, it but it might not, might be, not the be the top most forever. kaiju. I mean, uh, we have... Uh, Shin, which uh, we both adore. Good movie. Good movie. Yeah. Um, you wait till you watch. Here goes. <laughs> this title is amazing. Um, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters, All Out Attack. You wait for that one. That is that is a movie. I don't think we could cover that. I don't think we have space on the website <laughs> to print that title. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, the fans call it GMK. So there you okay. go. GMK. GMK is nice. We could write that. Yeah. <laughs> I think obviously, uh, I think Gojira might stay on top for a while, though. I, yeah, I don't I know. Think so. um, I think we do start throwing in a few uh, more delicious kaiju movies in there, so we so we do have maybe? a ranking. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's throw some b- bullshit and some great stuff in there at once and uh, mm. see what we get. It's a kaiju pie, as they say. Yeah. Um, before we sign off, I'd like to. Uh thank specifically um jack davenport for here producing the music for us um you can find him everywhere under the moniker 10 second beats on spotify uh, on instagram and the rest and you can follow him on letterboxd where he is jack davenport. just take out the vowels i believe um jack brain is his username find him a uh, great follow great musician obviously um i don't know uh, do you have anything to plug calvin the twingeeks.com so. ah the twingeeks.com the twingeeks.com a website about twins that are geeks. Yeah, exactly. Um, and kaijus being twins. Stay tuned for the next episode as Calvin and Stephen bring you a special on 2008's Cloverfield by Matt Reeves and 2013's Pacific Rim by Guillermo del Toro. It'll be a blast. And for all your kaiju needs and everything else in the role of cinema, stay tuned to thetwingeeks.com. Masura, yeah. Masura.